This is Macro Horizons, episode 54, Game Day, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 3rd. And as we sit down to watch the 49ers versus the Chiefs, a moment of silence is owed to Mr. Peanut. The commercials are always the best part. Maybe he'll be all right. Maybe not. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. It was a defining week in the Treasury market that just passed. If anything, we had a significant rally with the longer end of the curve leading the move. 10-year yields got right up against 150. So in the context of the coronavirus and its potential implications for broader market expectations, it's difficult to say with any certainty that this influence has run its course. In fact, Given that Chinese markets will be returning from the Lunar New Year holiday at the beginning of next week, it wouldn't be surprised to see another significant risk-off impulse. That said, there's also an argument that 10-year yields at 150 are effectively pricing in a pretty dramatic sell-off upon Beijing's return. It's not an environment in which it's easy to have an especially high conviction call on the treasury market. At this moment, we're very much in a go-with mode, and by that, I simply mean any time we see a leg lower in yields, it becomes more and more difficult to anticipate any retracement back to the levels that we saw at the beginning of January. That doesn't necessarily mean that two-handle tins are off of the table for the balance of the year, but even a risk-on all-clear signal as it relates to the coronavirus isn't going to push 10-year yields much beyond, call it 175, 180. Part of what is going on is we came into the new year with a degree of optimism that hasn't been supported by the economic data that we've seen play out thus far in January. Said differently, the market was looking for an excuse to buy the dip. The size of the dip wasn't as large as many, ourselves included, had been anticipating. And so as a result, we're back here towards the bottom of the yield range. Do we break 143 in tens? That seems like the next most obvious line in the sand. Through there, it's that record low of 132, which we saw established in 2016. In keeping with our broader outlook for the year and the range trading thesis that we've had, it's very conceivable that we could see 
10-year yields as low as 125, and through there, below 1% will very quickly become a reality. When we look at market expectations as reflected by Fed funds futures pricing, we can see that investors do believe the Fed will eventually need to get involved and cut rates to offset the broader economic damage being done from the situation in China. Throughout all of this bullish price action, we've continued to see the shape of the curve as largely a directional trade, so it isn't surprising that the flattening, which has characterized much of January, persists. With a special nod to the three-month bill versus 10-year yield, which has inverted, we wouldn't be surprised to see a renewed series of calls suggesting that the shape of the yield curve does once again imply a recession. To be fair, the notion that this far into the expansion we will eventually get a recession is something that we've held to be something of a truth. It's not a matter of if we will get another recession, but rather a matter of when it will occur and how significant that recession will be. Our baseline remains a relatively benign slowdown, a couple back-to-back quarters with slightly negative growth that the Fed eventually gets in front of and addresses with an even more stimulative monetary policy stance. So clearly the story of January has been one of a flight to quality, but is there something more fundamental that's backing this rally as well? Well, for the first several weeks of 2020, clearly all we saw were safe haven flows given what is going on with the coronavirus. And it was very difficult to look through some of the headlines and figure out what was truly going on in terms of investor sentiment. What I have found fascinating is as the economic data for the end of 2019 has come into clear view, There are some signs that the domestic and global economy was already on shaky footing even before the World Health Organization deemed the coronavirus an international health emergency. Specifically, if we look at French GDP, surprisingly negative in the fourth quarter, Italian GDP, surprisingly negative in the fourth quarter, even retail sales in Germany dropped rather dramatically in December as the year came to an end. Not to mention what we have seen domestically. John, what's your take on the trajectory of the U.S. economy? The Q4 GDP print was pretty instructive to me. And there is one narrative you can paint of, oh, growth is a round trend at 2.1% quarter over quarter annualized. We've had 22 straight months of CPI 2% or higher and unemployment's at 3.5%, all while equities are up near record highs. Everything's peachy and happy, right? However, when you looked at the details of the GDP print, there are a lot more reasons to be concerned. And in particular, I'd point to two. First of which, that 2.1%, of that 2.1, 1.5 was from net exports. And net exports in the U.S. tends to actually be a drag to growth. So this is more of a one-off impulse. And even more concerning, the reason net exports grew wasn't because the U.S. sold more things abroad. It's because the domestic consumer pulled back on buying. That's not normally a positive sign for the economy and, of course, is going to be impacted by the trade war. I would note that the vast majority of the pullback was in goods, not services. But even if the drop in imports was negative 8.7%, you have to go back to the early 70s to see a fall of equivalent scale. 
that did not basically correspond to a recession either happening or about to occur. Now, the trade war does create an asterisk here, but I'd layer in one more. If you look at business fixed investment, it's now declined for three straight quarters. The last three times we saw that corresponded to recession, and six of the last seven times we saw that it corresponded to a recession. We're starting to see some emerging signals of difficulties in the real economy that are accelerating. And one final point I'd make, Ben, I think you hit the nail on the head, that there is a fundamental reason for rates to be lower year to date. If you look at a lot of the top tier prints we've received, NFP was disappointing. ISM manufacturing was disappointing. CPI was disappointing. PPI was disappointing. ISM non-manufacturing managed to hold stable, but at a substantially lower level. The one kind of point of strength at the moment seems to be retail sales, but once again, we can come back to the GDP print, personal consumption disappointed. So I don't think we're at a stall speed in the U.S. economy just yet, but I don't think that there was much to get excited about in the Q4 print, even if the headline number came in above 2%. So my takeaway is that there is a reasonable probability that by the end of the year, the U.S. economy is facing at least a technical recession driven by the consumer, with the caveat being we would really need to see more deterioration in the labor market before we started to get acutely worried that consumers would pull back even further. What we haven't touched on in any meaningful way yet is inflation. Core PCE disappointed in the fourth quarter as well. This is important not because the Fed is going to be prompted into action at this stage, however, as another incremental reason for the Fed to favor an easier monetary policy stance in the coming quarters, it simply acts as another justification. On your point on the labor market, one not so widely monitored labor market read that I saw, the diffusion index from the Philadelphia Fed, which shows the number of states with positive payroll growth. In good times, you know, call that should be about 50. Instead, what we're seeing is not only is it below 40, but it's falling. Now, whether that trips the entire economy into a full recession is still to be determined, but that's at least an emerging crack in the labor market. The question that was partially answered in 2019, but I don't think is a done deal, is were the Fed's 75 basis points of cuts enough to offset this weakness, especially when coupled with Trump's phase one trade deal? As of now, it certainly seems like there's a good chance of no. And the fact that we're also seeing weakness in inflation suggests that the high pressure economy is shifting quite quickly into a medium to low pressure economy. And that medium or low pressure idea meshes well with some of the pricing we're seeing in the Fed Fund's futures market. I mean, by the end of March, there's 25% chance of a rate cut priced in. By the end of June, that number gets up to a 75% chance, which speaks to the market's willingness to quickly put the Fed back in play at the first sign of trouble. However, in interpreting these odds of a cut, quote unquote, it is important to consider that in the event things really slow down and start to look ominous as the year rolls on, it's not unreasonable to think that the Fed will have to act more aggressively than just 25 basis points. After all, with 75 already offered, Powell will feel the need to act aggressively in order to combat whatever's coming next. One of the fascinating parallels between the current episode and what we saw in the second half of 2019 
is the fact that what's driving the market's expectations for monetary policy has very little to do with the domestic economy. Said differently, the Fed has once again become the de facto central bank to the world. Because if the coronavirus and the broader implications for the Chinese and global economies are enough to tighten financial conditions via a spike in equity volatility, then the Fed will be effectively backed into a corner and need to deliver in terms of that 50 or 75 basis point initial rate cut. Not dissimilar from the policy pivot that we saw during the fourth quarter of 2018 and the beginning of last year. A couple mechanical ways where deterioration in the Chinese economy just naturally feeds through into the U.S., one is the exchange rate. You're seeing weakening pressure on the renminbi. That will, even with the trade war, put downward pressure on import prices and, once again, lead to less inflationary pressure. The other is if this is a significant enough negative growth shock to the Chinese economy, and by all signs, that looks possible you would expect commodity demand to start falling quickly. Indeed, we've seen copper prices have a record streak of number of down days in a row to the extent that things like the copper-gold ratio are indicative for 10-year yields or just to the extent that's indicative for commodity prices, industrial demand, and feed through into broader inflationary pressure. This backs the Fed into lower for longer and potentially having to provide some accommodation. To put it in more practical terms, given the fact that airplanes are not flying in or out of China to a large extent and factories are shut down more than we would typically anticipate around the Lunar New Year, there's going to be some type of impact on the Chinese economy. Even in the U.S., there have started to be some estimates that it's worth half a point, three quarters of a point for real GDP based solely on tourism out of the nation. That's a rough estimate to be sure because we don't know how long the situation is going to persist and we don't know the depths to which the virus is going to impact the population. There certainly are still a lot of unknowns about the duration of the outbreak, how widespread the disease will ultimately be. And one of the most common comparisons that's been made is the SARS episode in 2002 and 2003. And while at a first pass, that makes sense. I think the three of us have also discussed it. It is important to remember that China was a very different place in 2003, both in terms of not only its domestic profile, but also its contribution to global growth. Just as context, in 2003, China contributed something like 4 or 5% to global growth. In 2018, that number was right around 18 or 19%. So that expansion has much deeper economic implications for the global economy. And on a demographic level, the fact that we've seen the rise of the Chinese middle class and domestic wealth creation means that internal travel is now much more common and travel abroad is now much more common than it once was, which introduces an upside skew to the risk of how far the disease can spread. And at this moment, I think it's good to highlight that the market conversation is moving beyond the initial risk-off, scary, sentiment-driven focus to the more, what's the second-order impact? What's the second-order impact to global growth, U.S. growth, corporate earnings, and some of the underlying data? One other, and albeit a little speculative, moment where this could impact the front end is if the PBOC is forced to defend the renminbi, this could be something akin to 2015, 2016, where we saw large front-end treasury selling as a classic defend-your-currency style situation. The implication for there would normally be 
more inventory on dealer balance sheets, higher repo rates. What's different about this time is, of course, we have the Fed's repo program. So all of this could coincide and actually complicate the efforts to wind down the bill purchase program or reduce their footprint in the repo market. Something to watch for that we haven't seen yet, but it's something that I want to put on the radar. Well, one of the most important lessons that we took away from the selling from China during 2015 and 2016 is, as one of our core tenants, supply doesn't matter as much in the treasury market as it does in other markets, but also that active selling doesn't matter as much in the treasury market as it does in other markets. To further make that point, the two months leading up to record low 10-year yields of 132 were characterized by massive treasury selling in Asia. And in keeping with the theme that supply is not a primary factor in guiding where 10-year yields are, exactly as you say, Ian, in the event we see China start selling heavily in the treasury market, treasury yields are not going to be going meaningfully higher. And if anything, in that state of the world, you might actually expect lower yields given the underlying ominous motivations behind the selling pressure. However, in the front end, we could see some relative value distortions and tighter swap spreads as repo rises a couple basis points. And switching gears slightly, but staying in this supply-demand framework, in the coming week, we have the Treasury refunding and TBAC. Ben, you expecting anything interesting? The most interesting takeaway from the refunding statement is going to be the new information gleaned on the new 20-year bond. And we've discussed this before, but it's worth reiterating that in terms of timing, it's likely we're going to see the new bond match the refunding followed by two reopening schedule of 10s and 30s, as well as aligned to their mid-month coupon payment. Our expectation for the actual timing within the month that the auction will take place is the third week of the month, typically the same timeline that tips are currently offered in. And in terms of sizing, previous TBAC recommendations have flagged the $140 billion per year mark, which would translate to a $13 billion refunding, followed by two $11 billion reopenings. Outside of that, we're looking for the auction sizes of 3s, 10s, and 30s to remain constant for at least the next quarter. However, there is one interesting nuance in the bill market that could result from something Secretary Mnuchin said, and that's related to the potential for a higher cash balance policy which all else equal would lessen the downward impact on bill auction sizes and help alleviate some of the scarcity concerns that we've been talking about. So Ben, is it safe to say that the upcoming refunding announcement is effectively the Super Bowl for the Treasury Department? I mean, this is episode 54. Coincidence? I think not. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will continue focusing on trying to skew the odds that there's a moment of containment for the coronavirus and we see upward pressure on rates as a result of such a move. For the time being, however, it still appears to be the most prudent strategy to chase the rally until we've reached a point in which the bid has been exhausted. Investors in the U.S. rate market are understandably sidelined to some extent. We've seen this as volumes have been benign, not low by traditional standards, but certainly not the type of activity that suggests there's a ton of sponsorship behind the move. It's somewhat different overseas as activity has certainly been strong during the overnight sessions as a theme. We're operating on the assumption that to a large extent the market came into 2020 
with a relatively fragile positive outlook. And so there was a willingness to use any excuse to cover shorts and to bring 10-year yields back toward the bottom of the prevailing range. What was most surprising was how quickly we went through 170. And as 150 approaches on the horizon, we'd be surprised, frankly, not to see some of the buying interest slow between 150 and 143. The biggest caveat there being it does come down to how the Chinese markets open the new week after returning from the Lunar New Year's holiday. Did the Treasury market overreact? And in the final account, are Asian equities due for a bounce? That's a question that we will see addressed as next week unfolds. Let us not forget that it is non-farm payrolls week. Expectations are for a modest plus 160,000 job gains seen during the month of January. That's on top of a similarly uninspired 145,000 jobs in December. The labor market is a notoriously lagging indicator. However, it does offer some insight into the overall state of the consumer. If we see the unemployment rate start to tick up or non-farm payrolls growth itself continue to underperform, at one point we would expect that to trickle through to consumer confidence as the underlying questions about job security and career prospects become particularly apropos. In terms of levels that we like, Any breach of 150 in 10-year yields quickly puts a target of 143 on the table, that representing the low yield mark from last year. Similarly for 30s, a breakout below 2% is also going to represent a significant recasting of the outlook for the longer end of the market, probably worth another 5 to 6 basis points of upside on that technical event alone. The technical profile overall for the treasury market remains very overbought. We see stochastics and even MACD at levels which haven't been in place since September of 2019. Now, typically, these would be contraindicators and suggest we're due for a correction. However, we're reminded that through the simple process of consolidation within the prevailing range, we can see some of that momentum worked off. This implies a lack of necessity to see tens back at 175, 180. However, the downward pressure on rates will at some point lessen simply because the market has run out of buying momentum. And we've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. With January now behind us and our attention squarely on Poxitani Phil, we find ourselves empathetic to any creature so sensitive to its own shadow. Kindred spirits at least, animal spirits at best. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. 
You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.